Amen. Please be seated. If you are a kiddo, elementary school age, you can head out these exit doors. You can follow Keegan, who needs to walk, 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 walk to his class. He's my kid, so I can say that. If you're a middle-aged school-type person, you can head out these back doors here, like this, and uh, you will have a great Bible study out there. All things being equal, I would just rather stand out there and keep singing more songs, but um, we're going to suffer through a little bit of John here, which isn't true at all. How's everybody doing? Everybody hanging in there? And who's ready for warm weather? I, uh, I've heard it's coming, but um, anyway, if you planted something in the ground and it froze, just know that the Lord is still the Lord. You can replant. So, um, or for like Grant, he planted and then unplanted and then replanted. So he had to go at it. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 14 today, verses 1 through 4-ish. That's the goal. So when, uh, when Trev and I were looking at trying to go through this passage, this, uh, this section of text, text Trev talked about last week, really kind of starts in 1331. And it's, um, it's called the, the Farewell Discourse, and it includes this Supper Discourse, which is right after supper, and then this high priestly prayer that Jesus gives in ver, uh, chapter 17. And it's this incredibly long discourse. The discourse meaning not a dialogue, where Jesus is talking the whole time. And from 14 through 17, he's only going to be interrupted like four or five times. And so if you have a red-letter Bible, it's going to be just red, which is a good thing. But there's a lot in there. And Jesus is no longer trying to veil his words. He's speaking very plainly to his disciples. And these are the last things he wants to tell them before he goes to the cross. And they don't know what's going on. So the context of this is that we're going to start and... We may slow down a little bit, but that's nothing new to you. I don't, we have no idea how long we're going to be in the book, and it doesn't matter. But there's so much in here that when Jesus is, is teaching, and it's just an enormous, beautiful passage. So we're going to start in, uh, in 14, verse 1. And before I do that, let's, let's pray. Oh, Jesus, how wonderful it is to be able to sing as the redeemed that it is well with our soul. Lord, the lost man cannot say that. They cannot say that it is well with their soul and they can deflect and and make up all kinds of things. They can fill that void, but the person without Jesus, their soul is broken. But those who have put our faith in you, Lord Jesus, we can cry out to you that you have made our soul well that you restore our souls that is who you are you are a good shepherd and you restore our souls we come to you this morning we come to your word to hear your words and i pray that each person here would just lay their preconceptions lay their thoughts lay their everything out today and just receive what you want to teach us today Your Holy Spirit is active and teaching us. Would you please show us what you want us to know today? Help us to to read and interpret and apply your word today. I pray that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray for every soul in this room that we would, each of us, be restored. If there is a soul in here who 
has never put their faith in you, I pray that they would trust in you today and be restored to a right relationship with their God. Help us learn. Help us to obey today, Lord Jesus. In your risen and exalted name we pray. Amen. So John 14, 1, really to get the context of here, I'm going to go back and, and just recap kind of where we're at. So Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, and then uh, Judas, he's uh, predicted Judas' betrayal. Judas has left out, gone, and just Jesus and the other 11 are remaining. And Jesus, uh, Treb talked about last week how he had gone and he had given this new command, my children in 1333, I will be with you only a little longer. You look for me and just as I told the Jews, I'll tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come, but a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men you will know, will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And Peter, it's almost like they don't hear him, and they're like, where are you, where are you going? Lord, hold on, wait, wait, stop the bus. What's going on? And, and Jesus says, where I'm going, he saw me going to the cross. You cannot follow now. Going to the cross and then his ascension into heaven to be with the Father. But you will follow later. And Peter's like, what? I will, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I will die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, will you really? Because before this evening ends, you're going to deny me. Not just, not, just, not just say you don't like me, but actually to lie in order to deceive other people so that they will think that you're not connected with me in any way, shape, or form that you will literally deny me as your friend, as everything. So that is, that's the context that we come into 14.1, and it rolls out of that scenario. And if you, when you study the Bible, you always want to ask questions. Who, what, when, where, why? And you want to ask, what is the status of their heart? How are Peter and the disciples, their Jesuses, what is their heart like? We already know from 13.21 that Jesus says uh, he was troubled in spirit and, and testifies, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus is troubled in heart. And let's think about how the disciples are feeling right now. I mean, they are, they are anxious. Something is going on. Something's happening. They're scared. They don't understand what's happening. Jesus keeps saying he's going to go away. They don't know what that means. We have the beauty of hindsight saying, come on, guys, Jesus, they don't know that. So they are they're sad because Jesus is, he is feeling the weight of all of this. They're perplexed, meaning they're, they're, all their thoughts are just jumbled up and twisted up. They're ashamed. Can you imagine how Peter feels right now? Peter's like, I will die for you. And Jesus is like, no, Peter. No, you're going to deny me instead. Their faith is wavering. This Jesus, this Messiah, he's got to stay around to do what they think he needs to do. And he's saying he's going to leave. And they're like, where, where are you going? And Jesus says, where, where I'm going, you can't come now, but you'll come later. They don't understand. Their faith is shaken, and yet they love Jesus. They love their rabbi. They love their teacher. They love their friend. They love him. And yet all of these things, that's the context that they're in. This great, confusing soup of feelings, emotions, fears, love, and into that situation, Jesus says in 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
Different versions translate that first phrase, do not let your hearts be troubled. Some say, um, uh, let no longer your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. The, the word there for trouble is the same word for trouble in spirit that we have in 1321. And it means to be um, stirred up like, a, like, a, like water after a storm. Stirred up, uh, perplexed, confused, anxious, distressed, troubled. Let not your hearts any longer be troubled. It's not like Jesus is looking at them and saying, he's not saying here, hey, everybody just, just calm down. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, just, just settle down, chill out, take a breather, it'll be okay. He says, stop letting your hearts be troubled any longer. Your hearts are troubled, stop letting them be troubled. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imperative, and he is telling them to stop being troubled troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Isn't this amazing? Because is Jesus' heart, as we'll see as we go through this passage, and as we'll get lived out in Gethsemane, his heart is troubled. But out of his deep love for them, what is he doing? He comforts them. He comforts them out of his own afflictions, because he is a good shepherd, and he's taking care of his flock. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says this so many times, either do not be troubled. He'll repeat it again in this chapter. Do not fear. Be not afraid. God says it so often in the Bible, and Jesus is saying here to them, let not your hearts be troubled anymore. But you notice he doesn't just say, fine, don't let your hearts be troubled, and then he moves on. What does he tell them? Trust in God. You may have a translation note that may say, do you trust in God, or are you trusting in God? Really, it's, when he says, trust in God, trust also in me, this is a remarkable claim to deity. You just can't read the book of John and not think that Jesus claims to be God. People read it and say that he doesn't, but they're just not really reading it fairly. All throughout this book, we're 13 chapters in now, into the 14th chapter, over and over and over and over again. And in every single way, Jesus is claiming to be God. He claims equality with the Father. And he's telling his disciples, you're trusting in God, trust in me. Trust in him is trust in me. Even the grammar there, do you see trust in God, semicolon? Trust also in me. Semicolons connect two main clauses, right? So those are equal clauses in the grammar of that sentence. He's saying, good, trust in God. Continue to trust in God by trusting in me. That is what he is telling them. Trust in me because I am God. And it's always in, the, in John, that verb trust, or it's the same word believe. You'll see it translated in other versions. It's this verb, pistuo, and it's always this verb, and here it's connected with this preposition, not just trust. He doesn't say, stop being worried, and then just trust in whatever. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled, now believe in yourself. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled, now, now go and take a pill or take a whatever. He doesn't say that. Go for a run, do some push-ups. That's not what Jesus is saying. He does not in any way, shape, or form negate or or remove from their utter distress you see that he doesn't come up and say what are you worrying about no big deal quit quit worrying no he says don't let your hearts be troubled why because instead of your heart being troubled you can now trust in me not in something else not in your idea not in your capacity to deal with the situation not in your training trust in me he's saying take all of your trouble and bring it to me, and trust me, and it will be okay. And then he goes on to explain this. He kind of, you'd think he would jump. 
to something else, right? Just leave it at trust in me. But then he says this. How is this connected? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So that word house, like the, the, the King James Version translated, uh, in my father's house are many mansions. And so, because it was, anyways, the transliteration from the Latin Vulgate, boring, but that's what it meant. But it means dwelling place, right? In my father's house are many rooms. The idea is there's a really big house with lots of space to live in. And, uh, you know, people like have made a lot of, and there's been hymns and all kinds of things written about our mansions in heaven and all of these things. And, and that is true. And, but I think that what Jesus is talking about here is not that we're all going to get a really big house, but that in his father's house, there are what? Many rooms. And he says, if it weren't so, look, I, w- I would have told you this is true. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. How wonderful is it to have a place? If you've ever felt or been somewhere where you don't fit in, that's just this little tiny example of what it feels like to be out of place, right? It feels terrible. Humans were not meant to be out of place like that. And so Jesus comes up and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. I'm going to my father's house because in his house, there is room for everyone. There's room for you there. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go in verse three and prepare a place for you, I will come back to do what? To take you. To do what? To be with me. Why? So that you also may be where I am. He says, I'm going away. But look at this. I will come back. The whole reason he's coming back is so that we can be with him. Isn't that amazing? How comforting is that? He comes up and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. My father's house, there is so much room there. You're never going to run out of space. You, Peter, you, Peter, who are going to deny me, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. You disciples who are totally confused, who are totally distressed, who are totally troubled, there's a place for you in my home. Isn't that amazing? And if you think about the Father's house has many rooms, just think about the concept of home, okay? What, what is home, right? You can have a house. People live in a house or an apartment or a condo or whatever. But house and home are two very different things. And I think every language probably has a different word for house and for home. A house, right, is a place where you can go and eat and do laundry and sleep and, and mop the floor. That's not what your home is. Home is not when you think, oh, I really want to go home, right? In, uh, in our context, home is supposed to be where? It's supposed to be where, where you go and you get rest from this weary world in which we live, that this world beats you down and knocks you around, and you roll into home troubled. But at home, you're safe. In, at home, you are loved just for who you are. You don't have to put on the pretenses. You take off the mask. You, you're in your pajamas. At home, you are comfortable because you are safe and you are utterly and terribly and wonderfully loved. It's familiar. You belong. That's home. And Jesus is saying, in my Father's home, there's space for everybody to come. Isn't that wonderful? What a comforting thought that is from Jesus. 
And the rea- when it says I go to prepare a place for you, I, I don't think that Jesus, the carpenter, has been like building rooms onto uh, the Father's house. I mean, in, in the idea of the, you even have it today uh, in, in third world countries or in, in a lot of the Middle East where they, um, you'll have a building and then the parents live on one floor and then they, they go up a floor and then they, it's concrete houses, they leave the rebar sticking up. One, because if they cut them off, they get taxed differently. But two, they leave them there because once you cut the rebar off, you can't really build. They leave the rebar sticking up because the kid comes, bloop, they add another level to the house. Another kid comes, bloop, they add another level. This idea of kids coming home, even in this, this time period, uh, people didn't really live in, they lived in a, a communal homes. But it's this idea of there is space for you in your father's home. You're a welcome home. I want you to come home. Where is he going, right? Because this is what Peter has asked him. Lord, where are you going? Well, where is Jesus' next destination? It isn't heaven. It's the cross. And I think the preparation for heaven, I think that that's what he's talking about. Because he says, where I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we can't go to heaven. We're awful. We're broken. We're sinful. We're dirty. We're lost. You can't be awful and go to heaven. So Jesus has got to do something. And he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to start this process of redemption. Well, it's already started a long time ago. He's going to finish the process of redemption at the cross. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to call us. He's going to send his spirit, and we're going to get newness of life, and he's going to sanctify his bride to bring her home. He's going to get us ready to bring us home. And I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. There's also ideas of, of, of um, uh, a bridegroom going to get his bride, right? That's, it's, all of it is mixed up in here, these concepts of of marriage and, and family and home. And Jesus is throwing all this, not throwing, he is communicating, comforting his disciples with all of this information. Why? Because their hearts are troubled. So I was going through this text this week, and uh, <clears throat> if you ever teach something or preach something, it's like if you pray for patience, those are the worst days of your life, right? So you're like, Lord, please make me patient today. And then he's like, fine, I'm going to dump it on you so that you have to trust in me so that you'll be patient. Uh, I, I honestly, I, I rarely pray for patience. I pray for grace. I pray for um, sleep. Uh, I pray for, but when I pray for patience, those are days when the Lord's like, you asked, so here goes. <laughs> you just like open up the hose. And, um, but as you go through this week, it's like you realize um, there's trouble in this world. Every single person in here has had trouble this week. Uh, it, financial trouble, uh, health troubles, relationship troubles, or something connected to one of those things. And those things cause secondary and tertiary troubles, uh, marital troubles, kid troubles, neighbor troubles, house troubles, something breaks, something. I mean, everybody has had trouble. And then there is like real trouble. Somebody's sick and they're not getting better. Somebody is hurt. Somebody's heart is broken. Somebody has sinned so terribly that the ramifications of it, it's like throwing a grenade into your living room. And our hearts are troubled. Remember how they were feeling. Anxious, scared, sad, perplexed, fearful, 
their faith was wavering? Have you ever felt like that? Like it's all just a big mass of spaghetti feelings in your brain, in your heart, and you just can't figure it all out? I mean, I think every person has felt like that. That is a troubled heart. And Jesus is coming in to speak to them and to us today. Let your hearts no longer be troubled. Well, what do we do with that? Well, we bring our troubled hearts to Jesus, is what we do. I, uh, I went to the Psalms, right? Because this, this is why the Psalms are amazing. If you're not reading the Psalms, man, just all of the heartbreak and the betrayal and the sadness and the brokenness of, of human existence is in the Psalms. It is the salve to the heart. It is amazing. And uh, I'm just going to, I'm not going to read off all the Psalms where, I, where they, they are, the address, so to speak. I'm just going to read, these are out of, this is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, 14 different Psalms. Not the whole Psalms, just verses from those Psalms. I want you to just listen to what these psalmists are saying, okay? Because Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, trust in me. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God, because I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in in you. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. That's just a few snippets from the Psalms, and it is all over the entire Bible. Trust in the Lord. You can bring your troubled heart to Jesus, and he will help you. He is trustworthy, and you can rely on him. I have never, ever, ever, ever found him to be unfaithful. I have always found him to be true, and there has never been a moment in my entire life where I have needed the Lord, and he has not helped me, ever. Now, I have gone through difficulty. People still die. There are still troubles. But what I need is my soul restored, and that is what he does. But what does it mean to really trust him? The metaphor I always use is getting on a plane. So if you've ever gotten on a plane or, or a bus or anything you need to buy a ticket for and get in a vehicle and go somewhere, 
let's say you want to fly to Chicago, right? You have to go, think of all the dozens and maybe hundreds of tiny decisions that you have to make from today to the day that you land in Chicago, right? Let's say you want to go to Chicago in June, and you've got to buy a ticket. Well, in order to buy a ticket, you have to believe that planes exist, right? You have to believe that there's a thing. You're not going to just go online and just give some random website money. No, you, you make all these assumptions. You trust that American Airlines is an actual company that has planes that you can get on, and you, you, you know that this is possible. You know that there are planes. You're like, well, I need to get to Chicago. It's a long walk. Someone's like, why don't you fly? Oh, what, what is flying? Oh, flying is where you get into this big metal cylinder with wings on it with hundreds of thousands of pounds of thrust, and it shoots up in the air at 600 miles an hour and flies at 35,000 feet and then lands you there safely. What? I've never heard of this marvelous thing. This is so much better than walking. What do I do? Oh, well, this is what you do, and someone tells you how to do it. And then you go and you buy a ticket online. And then you get your e-ticket, because they don't actually send tickets anymore, but you get your e-ticket on your phone, and, uh, which is still weird for me, but anyway, it's what it is. And you, then, you, then you plan. I've got to get a ride to the airport. Uh, I've got to, or I've got to park my car, or I've got to, oh, I've got to pack a bag. I've got to do, I've got to get ready, I've got to plan for my trip. Well, and then comes the day of your trip, and you wake up, probably very early, and you wake up and you think, okay, I've got to go through uh, security. I've got to put all my uh, stuff in the bag, and I can't have my pocket knife in my pocket, and all these things. All of it predicated on the reality that you can do what? Get on a plane and fly to Chicago. So somebody drops you off at the airport, and all this time, every decision is based on one reality. It is possible for you to get on a plane and fly. You land at the airport, you get out, you get your bag, you go through, you check in, you go through security, you walk up to the gate, and you wait. And then the gate person says, okay, it's time to get on the flight, and you get on, and you walk up to the jetway, and then you walk down the jetway, and then you get to the plane, and then you crawl into the pilot seat, and you say, listen, buddy, I know that you've trained for millions of hours, but I am capable. I'm going to get us to Chicago. Uh, first off, they arrest you, and they take you away, and you end up, and someone takes a picture on their iPhone, and you end up on the internet, but you don't do that, right? What do you do? Well, you go and you sit down, and then you buckle up, and you listen to the nice person tell you what to do if the things fall down, or the plane crashes, or you're over a body of water, or whatever, and then what do you do? Do you sit there and freak out? You're like, oh, the pilot's never going to get us there. Even if you're freaking out, you're still sitting in the seat because they make you. And then the plane does what? It takes off. At, at what point are you in control at this point? You're not. You're not flying the plane. You are not the creator of the Bernoullian principle that makes you lift on the wings that flies you through. You're just sitting down, flying at 600 miles an hour, higher than Mount Everest, on your way to Chicago. Impossible for you to do that, right? Unless you've got enough thrust behind you and enough lift, and then you can fly. The pilot takes you, and you land, you're done. You're home. Do you believe that there is a God in the universe? Do you believe that Jesus was a real man who really said this to real people, that he really lived and really died and really rose from the grave? Do you? Can someone give me an amen? amen. Okay. Then quit stopping short at the jetway and complaining that Jesus doesn't help you. Get on the dadgum plane. Sit down, eat your peanuts, drink your Coke, and enjoy the ride. Quit working to get there. Just trust him. 
He's really going to help you. He just said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. You just get on the plane. It's not that complicated. We make it so hard. It's a lot easier to travel with a partner, right? If you are anxious when you fly, it's a lot easier to have somebody there with you, right? If you're a little child and you've never been on a plane before, it's scary. It's a lot better to have your mom and dad there. You know, we're in a family called a church, and we're supposed to help each other. Trust in the Lord. Bring your troubled heart to Jesus. Get on the plane and fly. Hebrews 6 says it's impossible, excuse me, 11.6 says it is impossible to please God without faith. You have to believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who trust in him. God really exists and he really rewards those who trust in him. We need to dedicate time to, to foster, develop, deepen, and strengthen our faith. If you've flown on a plane a hundred times, it's, you don't even think about it anymore, right? It's automatic. You don't even think about it unless, you know, something happens on the plane. But you just do it because you've done it before. The more you trust Jesus, the easier it is to trust him with harder things, right? You trust him for salvation. You trust him uh, in your marriage. You trust him with your kids. You trust him with, but constantly he's growing us to trust him in something deeper. Trust him in something weightier. Trust him in something that's harder. Individually, you, we must dedicate time to do it. I'm just talking about having a quiet time. Read your Bible, pray. It is ridiculous how, with all the technology that we have, how writing something down in a journal alleviates stress for me. I just buy a cheap old journal in a, whatever pen I can find, and I just write my thoughts out, write my prayers out, write my, Lord, I'm struggling, Lord, I'm sad, Lord, I'm hurting, Lord, I don't understand, please help me. And I, I go back and I look years ago and I think, man, I was a doofus. But look what the Lord brought me through. The, the simple discipline of Bible study, prayer, and journaling, we must do it because the Lord is calling us higher than we're capable of going in our own power. He's calling us to fly at 35,000 feet. And he'll do it, but only in his power. He won't do it in ours. So we have to dedicate time to that. Individually, dedicate time. If that means you have to say no to something else, to say yes to that, do it. Do it. But we also have to dedicate time to form that in community. God never designed us to be isolated. Never, 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 never. Just like it's easier to get on the plane when you're with a buddy, when you're scared and your friend can say, it's okay, we've done this before, I'm with you, it'll be okay. And when you're freaking out, they're like, breathe in the bag, just breathe in, breathe out. Here, get this guy, uh, get this guy ginger ale, he's going to be sick, it's going to be all right, I'm going to take care of you, I got your bag. So much better with a friend. That is life in the body. That is why we have life groups, because life is full of trouble, and we share that trouble together. Find community to do that in. I don't know where you find it. I, I know where you find it. I don't know where you find the time to do it. If you, if you don't have time to meet around with other people, I mean, Sunday morning is great, and we are, we are the stickiness around us people. We cannot show up on time to save our lives, but man, we'll hang around and talk with each other, which is so much love and ministry happens out there in that foyer between whenever we end and whenever y'all actually leave. And 
It's beautiful. You guys talk to each other. You say, how's it going? Someone says, it's going terrible. They say, hey, let's go to lunch and talk about it. Boom. That's sharing life. But you have to dedicate time to it. I want to talk real briefly just about the reality. This is a little bit a tertiary application. What kind of home is, the heavenly, is our Heavenly Father going to have? You think about home? Just think about the word home and the smells of home. Maybe think about your grandmother's home. Maybe think about your home growing up, food that is familiar, a place where you're safe. Your room is where you could go. Maybe home was a horrible place for you. Maybe you were beat up at your house and there was strife and fight and conflict. In my father's house, there is so much room for you where you can be safe, where you can be home. I think we should practice the hospitality that we're going to receive in heaven. Because I think that Jesus is really talking about the vastness of the Father's hospitality. You are welcome here. He will reject no person who asks him to save them. Do you know that? No one who calls out to the name of the Lord will be rejected by him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You've never done that. Call on his name. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't understand all these things, but I need you to save me. I confess my sin to you, and I trust that you are enough to save me from my sins. Show me the way. And the Father welcomes you into his home. Our homes are a little more complicated because they're full of people, and people are complicated. But God has given us an amazing something. It's called grace. Grace enables me to be a jerk to my wife and her to forgive me. Right? And her to not just forgive me, but love me in spite of my jerkiness. Grace enables me to yell at my children and then to go to them and say, I'm so sorry that I treated you like that. Will you forgive me? And then a little child says, yes, daddy, I forgive you. Oh, my gosh. That's grace unmerited favor that God gives us so that we can share grace with other people. That is what we should make our homes out of. We should have these homes that are these little lighthouses in a dark world where the light of the gospel shines out. Nobody's home is perfect. Nobody's home ever except for Jesus's, which he's going to come and bring us all to. But our home should be a place where we live out this gospel love and community. Let me ask you a question. If I was to ask you, what is one word that would describe your home? What would you say? Most of us would say some sort of adjective having to do with what it looks like. What's mid-century modern? It's such and such. It's whatever. It's got, I've got, I've got uh, tile floors. Oh, I've got, uh, I have, um, you know, furniture from Ikea. Does Jesus care what kind of furniture you have? No, he doesn't. Does he care what kind of home you make? Yes, he does. He wants us to practice hospitality. He wants us to take the hospitality that we are being extended by our Heavenly Father and that Jesus is preparing to bring us to and live it out in our lives and homes. It's called life in Jesus. That's going to require a couple things of us. 
One, it's going to require you to be okay if someone comes over when there's dog hair on the floor, all right? We have a yellow lab. She sheds mountains. And sometimes people come over and we do not have time to vacuum. No one has ever come over and been like, you have loved me and prayed with me, but I cannot believe there was a pile of dog hair in the corner. No one. They may have thought it, but they never said anything, <laughs> right? And does it really matter? No. Are people going to remember? Now, I'm not telling you not to clean your home, okay? If your home is like full of bugs and things, this, no one's going to feel welcome there. But <laughs> clean your house. But don't make that the, pre, uh, the, the prerequisite for having someone over. I can't have people over because the house isn't perfect. Well, you're not perfect, so why should your house look perfect? I mean, give up on it already. Let people in. Let them see your dirty dishes in the sink. And then love them anyway. Let them see that you've got a pile of laundry on the couch. Ask them to help you fold it while they're, you're praying for them. I mean, let's get real. We all need help. Nobody does it perfectly. Nobody. But how are we going to love our neighbor well if we never invite him into our home? If you don't have space in your week, let's just even go once a month. You have one night once a month where you can invite a neighbor, a friend, an unbeliever into your home and be hospitable to them? If your answer is no, you need to make some changes. You need to cut something out and make a space and practice this heavenly hospitality. Because it'll be a lot more fun, I feel like, when we get to heaven, when all of us get there and be like, oh, this reminds me of somebody's house I went to on earth. Wouldn't that be cool? But you're really welcome somewhere where you feel invited and you feel accepted. So you're going to have to invite somebody because generally people that keep inviting themselves over to your house, those are, that gets hard. So invite other people and just cut that whole thing off and be selective. I'm kidding. No. Um, but when you invite someone in and they are accepted as they are and then they are listened to, and generally if they're fed something yummy, they feel really loved. It's amazing how simple it is. The last thing is that I want us to rest on the reality that Jesus wants us to be with him. It is so wonderful to be wanted. When children, orphans, are left and they're not nurtured, they will often die from no apparent reason. Because human beings are meant to be wanted. They're meant to be loved. They're meant to be taken care of. They're meant to be nurtured. And I want to tell you that Jesus says, if I go, and he is now gone, he's ascended to the Father, he's sent the Holy Spirit, I'm waiting for his return, I will come back. Why is he coming back? To take you to be with me so that you and I can be in the same place together. You are wanted and you are loved. I don't care what your status is, whether you're married or single or divorced or a kid, I Jesus wants you, and he loves you, and he wants you to just trust in him. I want you to go out into this world this week knowing that you are loved, that you are wanted, that in your trouble that you can come to Jesus and be restored. And then I want you to go and share that love with other people constantly. Open up your home. Take all of your brokenness. Take all of your trouble and say, Lord, I don't I'm not perfect. I don't know what to do, but I open up my life and my home to you and then let people in and just let the Lord make a glorious job out of the mess that we make. Do not 
let your hearts be troubled. Even if you've denied Jesus this week, do you see where that verse follows? Immediately after, I tell you the truth before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, and every person in this room has turned their back on Jesus at some point this week. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you that you are who you are. You are a Jesus. You, gosh, you love us with this shocking love, with this grace that we don't even understand but need so desperately in our own lives and to give to other people. I, I pray for every soul in here, my own included, that in our trouble that we would trust in you, that in our trouble that we would dedicate time to knowing you. Half the time I think we don't trust you because you don't really know who you are. Help us to dedicate time to finding out who you are, to studying your word, to praying, to fellowshipping together, that we can learn who this Jesus is that we must trust in to have our troubled hearts settled. Help us, Lord Jesus, to say no to whatever it is we need to say no to so that we can trust in you fully. Jesus, guide us. Show us the way. You are the way. You finish this by saying you know the way. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.